Welcome to Workers' Compensation Academy, your source for how to manage risk to improve your bottom line. This podcast series is created and produced by Weber Gallagher. Visit us at wglaw.com. This program should not be considered legal advice. Please consult our attorneys for your specific situation. And now, here are our hosts. Welcome to today's podcast, The Smoking Gun. My name is Vanessa Mendeleski, and I'll be joined by Scott Wilson of our office, and we'll be exploring the preliminary investigation typically suggest for claims, and we'll also be speaking with Earl Anderson of Investigative Solutions and getting his perspective on surveillance. So let's get started. Hey, Vanessa, how are you doing? Thanks hey, for joining Scott, us. How are you? Good. Uh, the first topic we thought we'd discuss, and this is really helpful for adjusters as well as attorneys who are um, get the initial intake of file material, which usually includes the claim petition, then some file notes maybe from the adjuster, is one of the first things you should look for is the petitioner's wage and rate. Uh, the average weekly wage in New Jersey is determined by the 26 weeks preceding the date of accident and or occupational exposure. And uh, that is uh, that does include tips as well as any overtime. So that's something to keep in mind. Sometimes uh, adjusters will just look at what the hourly wage was times 40 hours. If the person was getting overtime or tips, they have to include that. Um, rate should be 70%. A temporary disability rate would be 70% of the petitioner's average weekly wage. Uh, this isn't seems pretty straightforward, but a lot of times, and I don't know if you find this too, Vanessa, but a lot of times when files come in, I note that the wage and rate is not there. Usually we're looking for a 26-week wage statement is the term we use in New Jersey. And the reason that's so vital is to make sure that the temp rate is being paid correct. Is that something you're finding as well, Vanessa, that you don't get those initially on the first uh, go around? Initially, I am finding that to be an issue. And sometimes uh, we get the file at the very end after the person's completed their medical treatment and we're moving on to PERM. So if we don't have the wage and rate, we don't know if they've been paid the correct temp rate, if they've been an, uh, if there's been an underpayment of temp or if there's an overpayment of temp. And sometimes the issue I have, Scott, which I'm sure you probably do too, is if there's an overpayment of temp, the judges aren't as likely to allow for a credit when we settle the case because their views, from what I'm seeing, is the insurance carrier, the adjusters know how to calculate the wage. They should be knowing what the more accurate wage and rate is for the temp rate. Is that something you're running into too? Yeah. And what, what I found over the years of doing this is judges tend to go, I find that if you pay the temp rate for the period of time is too long, for instance, uh, in New Jersey, you can stop paying temp when the authorized doctor says the petitioner has reached maximum medical improvement, MMI, as we call it. If you pay beyond that date, most of the judges that I deal with are going to allow the respondent to get a credit on the firm award for overpayment of the period of time of temp. However, and this is why the wage and rate statement is so important, if the adjuster uh, begins paying the petitioner at the incorrect rate, pays them too much, a lot of the times I've come across judges will break evenly on this and they'll, some will say, well, it's unjust enrichment. The petitioner has to pay that back on the firm award. While other justices, uh, sorry, other judges have said, quite frankly, it's the uh, insurance carrier's job to know how to calculate that rate. And it's not the petitioner's job. They're not the one who's doing workers comp day in and day out year after year. It's not incumbent upon them to understand what the correct rate is. So if you've overpaid them because you made a mistake in calculating the rate, tough luck, you're not getting that money back. And, and just as uh, by way of an example, I have a case right now that just came in where the overpayment of temp was in excess of $10,000. And looking at a preliminary um, figuring of how much the, the permanency is going to be on the case, the permanency may be only be around $20,000. So you're looking at a credit we would be seeking for probably half 
the value of the claim. And unsurprisingly, the petition attorney is fighting us, saying the statute allows respondents to either pay the rate or pay the petitioner's wage. So in this case, uh, we're going to have a fight. We're going to have to argue about that at the end of the case. But that's just something to keep in mind with regard to initially opening that file, especially for justice. The wage and rate is vital. It can become a huge uh, hornet's nest at the end of cases if it's not caught early. So the second thing we're going to talk about real quick is uh, medical records and trying to get any records for prior injuries or prior treatments. And that's really important from an investigative perspective because you want to know if they've had prior surgeries to the same body parts. Have they had prior MRIs to the neck? Have they had uh, motor vehicle accidents where they had multiple injections or is there a prior surgery that entitles us to a credit thereafter? Uh, for the permanency. And it's even more important when someone is trying to argue they're permanently and totally disabled and you're trying to get the second injury fund in. Now, Scott, I don't know if you're seeing this, but I've been having a little bit more difficulty lately with the second injury fund and trying to get any contribution because of the priors. They don't think certain things are considered enough to bring in priors. What do you typically see as being vital to the medical investigation for pre-existing for not only second injury fund, but for credits? Yeah, I think the key uh, thing for a lot of and a lot of adjusters, especially if they do multi-state work, because New Jersey is so odd and we're such an anomaly on so many levels with regard to workers' comp, is it's really important that you have to show prior loss of function. And the reason that prior loss of function is so important is you could have a case where a petitioner is born with a congenital, say, heart defect. If he's had no or he or she has had no impact, that condition has had no impact on their life until they file a workers' comp claim for some significant accident that occurs, the fact that she had a pre-existing condition in and of itself is not enough. You have to show that it impacted either her personal everyday living or her work environment. So it's really important uh, when we're uh, doing our medical investigation, not just to say, aha, we have a smoking gun. This person broke their arm when they were 13 years old playing midget football. Well, if it didn't impact them in any significant way for the rest of their life, the secondary fund certainly is going to uh, reject that argument and makes it most of the judges don't buy that either. So just having a pre-existing condition is not enough. It has to show that there was some impact on their life. Um, and there's a couple other things that, that I think are important on this topic is, um, you know, sometimes the injury seems so odd that both adjusters and attorneys don't even think to investigate the prior medical records. But I can tell you, I had a case in Newark one time where a guy was had a gunshot wound to the face. And believe it or not, 20 years earlier, he had been shot in the face in the same exact place and had a plate in his head. So we actually were able to obtain a credit, as uh, sad as that sounds for the guy, but we were able to obtain a credit for pre-existing disability because he had a gunshot wound to the same body part. So it, you know, it takes it takes some sort of creativity to think about it, but you got to make sure you do your uh, you know necessary investigation on that, make sure that we find out everything about pre-existing conditions. And one other thing is they maybe have a predisposition to things. For instance, um, we call syncope, which is passing out. If a person falls at work, but it was the result of their pre-existing condition where they are, have a tendency to faint and they are injured, that could be a defense on an idiopathic uh, basis. So it's really important to make sure we uh, we have all the you know relevant prior medical records. Now, I don't know if you find this, Vanessa, but I get a lot of um, argument from petitioner's attorney in, the, in, in Central and South Jersey. If you try to just, without any mention in the, treating records of any pre-existing conditions, uh, when I say treating records, I mean from the authorized treater, if they, if you try to go and get the petitioner's primary care physician's records, do you find that they, did you get a lot of resistance from petitioner's attorneys from that as well? I do get a lot of resistance from them on that. And they try to say we're going on a fishing expedition. So there really has to be something within the medical records that allows us to latch onto it to show that they had 
prior issues, maybe they mentioned that they, if it's an ankle case, they had prior ankle sprains. So that could allow us to reach out for the primary care doctor records to try and see how many times have they sprained their ankle? How bad was it? Can we get a functional loss credit to kind of help lower the cost of exposure on it? And another area that we kind of like look into, not just the medical records to figure out about pre-existing is also their personnel files directly from the employers. Because a lot of times they'll have to do pre-employment physicals. So that might lay out the conditions that they have or have they had prior back surgeries, prior shoulder surgeries, prior motor vehicle accidents. So any kind of investigation with the personnel file is also very helpful. Do you find that when you're looking at the personnel files, Scott, you sometimes find various things that can help us? Absolutely. I would say one area on this, and it's probably a pretty specific thing with personnel file, uh, is with occupational pulmonary claims, especially if they're working in an industry where this is a typical uh, claim that's filed. If you can have uh, the personnel file in your hands, you can often see that they're given yearly checkups. And if you can find a manifestation date where the petitioner knew or should have known of his manifestation of the injury, uh, the condition, and his employment, you can have a potential defense there on a statute of limitations. So yeah, it's really important that you get that personnel file. This also comes up, I have a pending uh, claim for um, uh, occupational distress, considering uh, the petitioners are arguing that they had a, a, a hostile workplace. And you know, we went to the personnel file and the person was disciplined quite a few times and it's really well documented what happened, who were the witnesses, what the uh, what the repercussions were for the petitioner. And it's really going to make her case hard to prove because that personnel file was in such good shape. So absolutely want to go ahead and uh, get that personnel file uh, before you know going any further with the initial investigation of the claim. And the last thing we want to talk about is getting the ISO or CIB reports to help us figure out if there's any prior motor vehicle accidents or any subsequent motor vehicle accidents. Sometimes petitioners conveniently forget to talk about an accident that they had previously where they had a lot of treatment or maybe that they've had a subsequent accident. It's really important to get into the ISO part of it. And sometimes I get very long ISO reports with various searches. I don't know if you've run into that same issue sometimes, Scott. So you have to go through all of them to kind of see what's relevant and what's not. Yeah, you know, I, I may be a person that just visually has a tough time with ISO and CIB reports. They, they tend to run they seem like they're tree killers. They just seem to run for many, many pages when they should be able to be formatted into one single page for each incident, but they're not. So I find them a little bit difficult to read. And there's a couple of, I found pitfalls that I've come across over the years. Uh, number one is you see a, a matching hit. If it's a, let's say it's a petitioner injures a shoulder and you're looking through her ISO report and you see there's a motor vehicle accident that says shoulder. It doesn't say right or left shoulder, it says shoulder. And you say, oh, let's go get those records. And those records come back and it's the petitioner's daughter. And you look back at the ISA report, and sure enough, it's the petitioner's insurance, but the actual person who was injured will say the parties involved, it's a relative. It's not the actual petitioner. So that's one thing to keep in mind is to make sure that the, the records that you're requesting are for, this, you know, typically for the same body part, and also that it's actually the petitioner, not a relative who is in their car driving and it was their insurance that was, that was involved. Um, the the uh, other thing is that I often see on um, ISA reports, it'll say, uh, bodily injury in describing what the outcome was. Uh, if you have a case with a specific body part and you just see there was a prior accident involving quote unquote bodily injury, I think it's incumbent if you're doing your job to make sure you go and get those records. And if you get any resistance from a petitioner's attorney, I think going in front of the judge, the judge is going to say, no, nah, they're entitled to those records because we don't know what they are. And you know, nine times out of 10, it turns out 
It's not related. It's a different body part entirely, uh, but it's something to keep in mind. And, and also, uh, there are uh, times you'll just see where it says um, the car was damaged or just, uh, just property damage is the uh, description. In those cases, I, I don't usually request the records on those because I feel like most of the time they come back, if not all the time, as being irrelevant. There's no treatment. The petitioner just reported her car was you know, damaged or fender bender or something like that. So I think the real key thing is to make sure you're matching up body part and that it is the actual petitioner involved in your workers' comp case that's also on the ISO report. I would have to Scott, and we had to talk about all of the preliminary investigation so we could bring in someone who's been patiently waiting to discuss surveillance with us. We want to bring you to the podcast today, Earl Anderson from Investigative Solutions. Welcome, Earl. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. So before we get started on what you do with Investigative Solutions, can you give us a little bit of your background and how you got into this area? Sure. Uh, prior to becoming a PI, I was the FBI agent. And when you leave the FBI, there are only so many things you can really do. Uh, you can either take your security clearance and go somewhere with it, or you can start your own PI business, which a lot of guys do. And uh, that's the way I chose to go with it. And about how many years have you been solely doing PI work? Ten, almost on the nose. And you were explaining to us before we started the podcast, uh, you typically do insurance-related surveillance and investigation. Is that right? Yeah. So we'll do liability work, workers' comp, and then we'll also do some corporate and internal investigations for some of the other companies we do work for. So our discussion today is really going to be more along the lines of insurance and workers' comp, but feel free to throw in any examples or along the lines in your 10 years of investigation, okay? Absolutely. There's not one surveillance that's exactly like another. Every day it's something new. So, I guess the first thing Scott and I are curious about is when you get a new file from somebody, what do you typically look for? What do you typically ask for from the carrier? Everything. We, we want it all if we can get it at all um, because you never know where you're going to find the information you need. The basics you want are who is the person? Where do they live? What kind of vehicle do they drive? Do they work? Um, anything and everything we can get that's going to help us pick out the best time and date to do surveillance is what we want. Now, oftentimes we don't get everything. Sometimes we'll just get a name and an address or a name and a date of birth or a name and a town sometimes. And then you just got to do a little bit more prep work before you can actually get out and do the surveillance. Um, so the more we can get, the better prepared we are and the, the easier it is to start. Uh, now, Earl, if the petitioner is getting authorized treatment, I assume you definitely want to know about those appointments just so that maybe, I know I've seen in the past, the surveillance is done when the petitioner is entering an authorized doctor's office and then after they leave the authorized doctor's office, because sometimes those two videos look very different, if you know what I mean. Uh, sometimes they're hobbling in on crutches and, the, and then they're jogging out when they're down the street. So is that something that's really important if the adjuster can get you that information? Yes, it's definitely something we use. Um, we've seen over, over the years, it seems, people are becoming more and more careful. Um, maybe with the internet and, and everybody knows that surveillance is going to be out there, it's, it's a little more difficult. But we've definitely seen people uh, show up to their IME with canes and, and a big limp. And then uh, 
leave and actually go to work. We had um, one person we were following worked for one of the major plumbing companies, went to his IME with the cane and the limp. And then we caught him later that same day working for another plumbing company when they were cleaning out a house. He was carrying out a flat screen TV, bed frames, no limp, no cane, um, very good conflicting footage. Now, Earl, when you're doing surveillance or getting ready to do surveillance, it's really important to maybe get some kind of social media search or maybe even a picture of the injured worker or person before time. Is that right? Absolutely. So you're, you're preparing. I, I have a saying. I'm not going to say it exactly on this because it involves some words that aren't proper. So uh, if you prepare like garbage, you're going to perform like garbage. Um, garbage is the new word. Um, so if you don't do your preparation and, and you don't, you don't do your research beforehand and, and figure out everything that's possible, you're just kind of taking a random day and, and going out and doing surveillance. And now sometimes you can get lucky and that's going to work out really well. Sometimes you get unlucky and, and nothing happens, but we like to do a lot of homework before we, we hop in the car. We like to know if they're going to go bowling every Tuesday. We want to know that. Um, if they play in a softball league Sunday mornings, we want to know that. Now we can't always get that from social media. We can't always get that, um, from our clients, but any, any little piece we can get that helps us pick a date and time is going to help us in the long run. Earl, what, roughly, I mean, and if you have, if you don't know a figure, that's fine, but uh, do you, what percentage of these people who are in, in the pool of people that you're investigating have social media posts that are accessible by just the public and are not, you know, there's no security on them so you don't have to get, because I noticed many times if you try to search someone's, it'll say a private only for friends who are accepted if you're using like Facebook. Are there a fair number of these people that are just leaving their, their social media posts open to the public? Less and less every day. Um, so, you know, four or five years ago, it was, that was the first place you'd look and, and you'd know right then and there, okay, this person is, is definitely somebody we should go surveil on a Tuesday afternoon at two o'clock. Um, or, hey, look, they're planning a barbecue on Saturday. That's probably a good day to go and, and sit on this house. But nowadays, people are getting more careful. And I think, um, I don't know, but I think opposing counsel has, has something to do with that in, in kind of coaching people in, in how to prepare for um, these type of lawsuits. But if you can find out friends and family of these people, sometimes you'll find other people who are posting publicly, including the person you're you're setting up to follow so you can still develop information you just have to look in in different places for it something meaning like if the subject is uh, miss x is the subject of your investigation if her friend ms y posts a picture and tags her as one of those people that could be potentially something you can view as a, uh, from the public and it's not protected under the miss x's privacy exactly or if mixed miss x is married to mr x and Mr. X's uh, profile is uh, viewable to the public, but Mrs. X is not. And you see that Mr. X is planning a barbecue or planning to go camping or, or whatever, uh, planning a vacation down the shore. You got a pretty good idea where Mrs. X is going to be. That's great. That's, um, that's very helpful. Um, Earl, when you're headed out into the field for surveillance, typically how much would you recommend that an, that a carrier agree to when they're dealing with a, a petitioner that there, there's some red flags as to whether or not they're actually working or they're, 
you know, magnifying their symptoms when they go to their doctor? Three weeks. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so uh, for the most part, our clients usually start with either two or three days. Um, and sometimes we'll break that up. Sometimes we won't. Um, it just kind of depends on how the surveillance goes. Every surveillance is different. And if you get to a house and you don't see anybody after four hours, that doesn't necessarily mean that after that fifth or sixth hour, they're not going to come out or they're not going to come home. Um, so it's difficult to, to say exactly what it's going to take to get started. But if you do the legwork ahead of time and you get a pretty good idea of work hours, um, free time. And the other thing with people that post a lot, even if they're not posting important information about where they're going and what they're doing, if they're not posting in between the hours of nine and five, it's a pretty good indicator that they're doing something other than having their phone accessible to them. Um, so that may indicate that they're at work between nine to five or 10 and six or, or whatever those hours may be. So there are little tricks and, and little intricacies into looking at someone's posts where you can kind of get an idea of where they may be at work and not have access to their phone. Um, uh, Earl, if I could just jump in, sorry. I, I just, I had a question because, you know, that I had a colleague once make a joke and I said I had surveillance on the case and they said, oh, would you get the guy sitting around smoking a lot? You know, because a lot of times it seems like people are standing in front of their house having a cigarette or standing in front of a store having a cigarette because that's the time that they're out of their car, out of their house. Do you right. think it's helpful, and, and, and you know, it's something I would certainly pass along to adjusters if you thought so, to not only break up, if they give you, say, two-day surveillance, rather than do them on consecutive days, break them up several days apart? And also, does it make sense? I'm sorry to give you a, a, a double-ended question there, but is it also important to break up the time of day that you're looking at the picture? So if you go on a Monday in the morning and a Thursday in the afternoon, is that something you look to do, or is it just really specific to the case? So unless there's a rush or we know for a fact that the very next day we're going to get something or we have a very high likelihood of getting something important, it's very, very rare for us to do back-to-back -back days. Um, now, if we were to go out and we catch a, a guy who's on full comp, not supposed to be doing anything, and he's out building a house, you can bet we're going to go back the next day. Um, but more common than not, we see, oh, he was having a good day as a defense. So to show that a person was out just on one weekend doesn't necessarily appease the courts in the sense that they're not injured. Maybe they were just having a good weekend is what we hear a lot. So we like to spread our surveillances out um, over set days. Um, and, and you can't plan the next day until you know what happens on the day you're already out. Um, just because so many different things could happen. They could, they could hop on a plane and, and leave town. They could, they could be working and you want to go out the next day. They could not be seen and they could be away on vacation and you don't want to waste two or three days sitting on a house when nobody's there. Um, so you're constantly, I, I, I use the word preparing, but you're, even when you're out there, if you're not seeing stuff, um, you're going to keep your eyes on the house, but you're going to keep digging on your phone to see if you can drum up some other information based off of what you're seeing at the house. Um, and, and sort of a follow-up to that, question is, uh, well, there's actually two, but what do you do if you feel like you've been compromised? If you feel like the, the petitioner saw you and feel, you know, he's probably been alerted by his attorney, you know, even if the attorney doesn't know or suspect that there's active surveillance going on, when they do their initial inter 
certainly in petitioners' cases in workers' comp in New Jersey, I'm certain these attorneys, if they're qualified for their job, are saying, hey, be aware, it's legal that you're under surveillance if you're in a public space. So, you know, just be, you know, modify your behavior that way. What do you do if you feel like you show up there on a Tuesday afternoon and you're like, ah, that guy definitely identified us? What is there without giving away trade secrets? I don't want you to say anything you don't want to reveal, but is there right. are there methods for you to get around that problem? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it if somebody sees you sitting there, specifically the person you're doing surveillance on, it it definitely makes things more difficult moving forward, but not necessarily impossible. Um, you could, obviously you're not going to come back the next day. You're going to give it a week, maybe two weeks, um, for them to keep looking. And then the next time you come back, it's, it's not going to be the same investigator, same car could be the same investigator, a different car. I use two different cars when I do surveillance. Um, but it could also be a different investigator in a completely different car. Um, or you have the option of coming back with two investigators and sitting farther away where you may not get them digging in the garden right away. But if you have two investigators sitting on opposite ends of the street, you're going to see them leave, be able to see where they go and follow them without a problem. And throughout the day, you can do what we call spot checks where you drive by the house and see if they're outside doing yard work. And if they are, then you could set up uh, an instance where we do it all the time, where we'll drive around the block. We'll dump one car, one investigator will hop in the back of the other investigator's car and then the investigator will go park the car on the street, hop out of the car, walk around the block and leaving one investigator in the car. So it seems like that car is parked there legitimately. Um, but there's a guy with a camera in the back getting the video that we need. Gotcha. Um, so there, there are always ways to get around things. Now, if the guy comes and knocks on your window and asks you if you want a cup of coffee, um, <laughs> you know, or, or says, stop harassing me, then, then, you know, you're, you're, limited into what you can come back and do. Sure. Now, how about, is it, uh, and I think of this, I've had investigators in the past go into, um, we had a petitioner who uh, was working at a nail shop. She was doing nails. And the, the investigator actually went in there as a potential customer and had a camera in the bag and got audio, which, you know, it's pretty rare, I find, in, in workers' compensation cases. I don't know if, you, Vanessa, you feel the same way that, but I was wondering, like, in what percent, because the, obviously the audio can be particularly damning. You know, if you have video, oh, well, she was in that shop that day. She was just helping out her friend. You know, there's always some sort of excuse for what right. she was doing there. And and listen, in New Jersey, judges tend to be a little more sympathetic to petitioners because it's workers' comp, not employers' comp. But uh, what are the percentage of cases where you, you think you're you're able to get any kind of audio on the petitioner? So audio is tricky because New Jersey is a one-party state, but in order to record audio of the petitioner, I would then have to be speaking with her. Or the investigator would have to be speaking with her. You can't then record audio of her talking with somebody else that you're not a party to that conversation. Right. Um, that's breaking all sorts of wiretapping laws. Right. Um, now, that being said, I've also had cases where um, before I was bald and I had some hair, <laughs> I've gone in and, and gotten a haircut and, and spoken with uh, the subject of the investigation and 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 had a, we carry covert, covert cameras everywhere we go. You need them because you never know when you're going to have to go inside of a store or a, a bowling alley or, or anything. So, um, it's, it's not very common. It's more common to get video of them inside with a covert camera than audio. Um, but if you're, if you're quick on your feet and you're good at talking to people, it's, it's definitely very beneficial. I mean, not even just with a subject, we had a, a case where we would start really early in the morning. I think we started at like 
four thirty, five o'clock in the morning um, for two separate days. And we, we never saw this guy. And uh, I'm out there one afternoon and I see the guy's father show up and start working on a sprinkling system. So I'm like, Oh, that's odd. I, I wonder where maybe this guy's really hurt and he just can't do anything. His father came, he's working on it. So one of the neighbors pulls in and the father starts chatting up the neighbor. I'm like, wow, this guy's chatty. So the neighbor on the other side of the house pulls in and the guy starts chatting up that neighbor too. So now I know this guy's chatty, likes to talk. So I swing around the block and, and I walk the block on foot. And as I get close, I, I fake a cough and he looks up. I said, Hey, how are you doing? You know, it looks like a fun job. And he proceeds to tell me, Oh, this, this isn't even my house. This is my son's house. So I said, well, why are you doing the job? And he said, Oh, my son's a pipe fitter. He works in New York city. He leaves at three 30 in the morning to get to work. <laughs> now that's a smoking gun. <laughs> I said, wow. I said, he's got a great dad. And I just continued on. And then from then on, obviously we, we knew what time we had to start. And of course, to make things more difficult, he would leave at 3.30 in his car, go up the parkway, hop in the bus. And then from the bus to the, the city, he'd get off the bus, and then he hopped on a city bike. Wow. So I get to, I got on the bus with him, get to the city. He hops on the city bike, and there I am like a fool running up the streets of Manhattan trying to chase this guy while he's on a city bike. Um, but if... Sometimes that's all you need is a little break like that to, to really put a case together. Um, it would have been easier had he not hopped on the city bike, but <laughs> you can still get it done. <laughs> that The last question, I, oh, sorry, Vanessa, go ahead. You had a question. I was going to ask Earl, when you're doing the investigation and you find out someone's going to be at a specific location, do you tend to go before time to see the best spot for you to sit and catch him coming in the door? Or do you just kind of have one guy follow and one guy there ahead of time? So that, that depends. Um, it, that's a tricky situation. It's very situationally dependent because especially for IMEs, if they have an IME appointment at one o'clock in the afternoon, for whatever reason, they're going to show up at nine o'clock in the morning and be done with that IME. Um, it happens more often than not. It happens so often that we don't go and sit on the IMEs if we have an address. We're going to go in the morning and, and watch them leave the house. And one of the things I always tell my guys when I'm, when I'm training investigators is not to assume where someone's going. You can anticipate where they're going to go, but don't assume. So, for example, if you follow someone to the grocery store and they load up with groceries and they put them in the back of their trunk, some people would think, well, this is great. I'm going to beat them home. I'm going to leave now. I got the video loading the trunk. I'm going to go to their house and catch them unloading it. And it sounds like a great idea until they go to that barbecue at somebody else's house. And that's where the groceries are going. And you're sitting at their house and they're not coming home. So you can anticipate them going home and get set up to go in the direction of their house when they're going to leave, especially if they're going to make a tough left. You may want to get across the street. So you just have to make a right. But you don't want to go all the way to their house and have them not show up because then I, I always say you're, you're getting paid to follow people, not to think. And it's true. People are paying us to follow somebody and see what they do, not to think about what they're going to do and try and try and be one step ahead of them because then you end up with nothing. Um, now, if you know they've been posting all week about going to the beach and they're going to go to this beach and that beach and then maybe. Um, but I still, I'd still rather watch them go. 
the last question I had for you, and this is something that's uh, technical in terms of the legal end of this for attorneys, but uh, one of the issues that comes up in workers' comp uh, with any kind of investigations when we're bringing an investigator in to testify uh, and they're bringing a tape of surveillance or audio, but mostly it's it's just the video surveillance. Um, what do you do to ensure a chain of custody so that when that investigator shows up, takes a stand, we can show to the judge's satisfaction that, that this is the original uh, that was recorded, the, the, the investigator has had custody of it, and no one else has interfered with it, and also that it's the complete tape. It's not been edited. Right. So we don't, by practice, we don't edit any of our videos. So if, if we shoot video of the wrong person coming out of the house, that's unfortunately, it's going to be in our surveillance video because when we are on the stand and somebody asks us, have you edited this, this video, we're going to be able to say no. Um, as far as chain of custody goes, that's kind of changed over the years. Um, so we have uh, behind me, uh, we have a, a desk with drawers in it and it's just filled with now uh, micro SD cards from the cameras holding the original videos. They're all labeled um, and they're, they're locked in our cabinet. Um, prior to that, it was the mini DV tapes or the mini DVDs that would work in the cameras. And I don't know, but I'm guessing before that it was VHS tapes. Um, so in, in that sense, now, now we're starting to move towards digital. So we're putting everything right to the cloud. Um, and we're storing it there where it's secured, it's timestamped, it's dated. And um, although people have access to download it and view it, nobody has access to edit it. Uh, now, it would be interesting if, if people try and challenge that in court as time goes on. Um, I've spoken with a lot of other investigative companies about that because we're still storing SD cards. Right. And a lot of companies don't do that. Um, so I don't know how that's going to play out. Uh, it's one of those wait and see approaches. But until then, we have SD cards in the drawer. Locked yeah, I, I don't know about you, Vanessa, but I haven't had that issue yet where uh, the tape was saved to the cloud and that was challenged. I'm not sure if you've had that. It seems like it's a pretty novel uh, issue since it's that technology is only really a couple of years old in terms of, I'm sure it's old, but mass use by companies and individuals using yeah. the cloud. It's a pretty recent development last four or five years, I would imagine. Yeah. I haven't had that issue come up lately, but as technology develops, I'm sure we'll have, have it come up at some point in time when we need to take some testimony or have Earl or any other investigator come in and certify us to the authenticity of a video. Now, Earl, I got a question for you. Since we're currently in the COVID pandemic situation, has there been much surveillance or have you done more social media searches or, or how are you thriving through this time? So uh, surveillance is about 65% of our business, I would say. Um, and when COVID first hit, uh, we actually did really well because a lot of people were stuck at home, but they didn't want to be stuck in the house. So they were cleaning their garages, they were doing gardening work, cleaning out their lawns. Um, so in that sense, nobody wanted to be in their house, so everybody was outside doing stuff. So you could just pull up, isolate in your car, because you're not going to get out and talk to anybody at that point. And people would come outside and do things. And I, I feel like they continued to do that. But the garage cleanouts and stuff died out, I would say, end of April. And so we, we did hit a little bit of a lull surveillance-wise. Um, but now it's, it seemed to pick back up. We'll see what happens with, with the cold weather. Um, but we do a, a handful of background investigations, um, social media investigations and some internal stuff for, for, 
for corporations, which, which help keep us busy. Now, in your 10 years that you mentioned that you've been doing this, can you tell us the most interesting surveillance you've discovered? Sure. So I'm going to go, uh, we were working for, this is a different case, um, but it involved, actually, it's the same case involving more than one person. The, the subject we saw go into the IME with the cane and then cleaning out the house later on worked for a major plumbing company. Um, he wasn't the first person that we started doing surveillance on from that company. They had assigned us a case probably a month or two before that. And we went out to do the surveillance and that person came out and hopped in a plumbing truck. Uh, and they went and did plumbing throughout the day. He actually was digging up a backyard with a a pickaxe and the, the video turned out excellent. Um, but when we brought that back to the company, they looked at it and they looked at the other plumbers and they found one, I think two other plumbers that worked for the company that were also out on comp cases. And the owner of that company had already settled uh, a comp case and opened his own plumbing business. So we went from a, a one person investigation to a three person investigation and it went on for a couple months um, where it was almost like a rotation where guys would go on comp. They'd work for this guy. They'd go back to work. They'd go on comp. They'd work for this guy. Um, and eventually, if, if you follow somebody enough, eventually they're going to figure it out. So they, they started to catch on. So we started switching up cars using multiple investigators. Um, and then when it finally went to court, the opposing counsel had, had no idea. Um, I guess these guys failed to to let him know. And when he saw the video, which was, it was this was in New York, it wasn't in New Jersey, but at the time in New York, you weren't supposed to actually view the video um, in the court. You're supposed to leave it with the judge and the judge was supposed to view it at, during his own time. But he just wanted us to show um, the subject who happened to be sitting in, in the room with the judge and us and his attorney Um so he could look at it and say whether it was him or not. And of course the picture we pull up is him carrying this big bed frame out and he just nods his head that it's him and his counsel just, I mean, was completely embarrassed. I felt bad for him. He read in the face fuming because he had no idea that this guy had been out working for months on end while he's fighting this claim. Um, so that was by far one of my favorite um, just because it started with one and, and turned into so many. And, and Vanessa, I have to, you know, just to finish this podcast for all those people who are listening to us, and I hope there are a lot, but the, my all-time favorite, unfortunately, it didn't happen to me, but it's a kind of a famous story in South Jersey. And my all-time favorite surveillance story is a petitioner got total disability, and one of his conditions was he was blinded in an accident. And, uh, he, you know, the case went to trial, and all the doctors testified. They said, yeah, you know, we see nothing wrong with him physically, but he is definitely blind. We've tested. He has no sight. And so he received total disability and moved to Puerto Rico. And uh, while he was in Puerto Rico, years later, the adjuster looked at the file and said, something bothers me about this file. I'm putting an investigator on this guy. They took surveillance of him in Puerto Rico, and he was just driving a taxi cab. And so they reopened the claim to to get their benefits back. And the man actually flew back to the United States and took the stand in workers' comp court to explain why he was driving a cab. And, of course, the attorney asked the first question, you know, uh, you're you're totally disabled because of blindness. How are you possibly driving a car? And he had the all-time greatest line and testimony I've ever heard. He said, I had a sudden flash of sight. 
<laughs> you can't get better than that. <laughs> it's true. I'm sure it wasn't an outright dismissal of it. Maybe they gave some Section 20 money to <laughs> yeah. you know, resolve the case, right, Scott? Yeah, you know, I've had, uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, from Earl's perspective, I've had some really good surveillance over the years, you know, really smoking gun type situations where, you know, there's video evidence of petitioner working. I even had one where the, the, the video showed the, um, the guy working under the table and he was being paid cash from the boss to the petitioner. And that was one of those kind of, as Earl mentioned, with the petitioner, out, the petitioner attorney outside yelling at the petitioner red face, like he couldn't believe this happened. But in, in almost every case I've had, the judges in New Jersey still say, ah, oh, well, this guy had an injury to begin with, so I think you should pay him something. So unfortunately for adjusters, uh, catching someone on tape uh, is not a, uh, a slam dunk uh, just because they were working or maybe doing something they, they said they couldn't do physically to a doctor. That's usually not a slam dunk in getting a dismissal. You're probably still going to play, unfortunately, some small Section 20. And although there's a fraud statute uh, in, in workers' comp, I don't know about you, Vanessa, maybe you can speak this too. I, I've seen very little um, uh, success under that statute, from not just from myself and our firm, but any kind of defense firm that files those sorts of fraud uh, motions, they, I've seen uh, haven't gone very far with the judges. I don't know. Are, do you see the same? I've seen the same thing. They haven't gone very far. Usually the work that Earl and his company does allows us to argue for a section 20 so we can close it out full and final. So sometimes the smoking gun that Earl finds is enough to allow us to kind of just close it out and not have to continue on with, with the case. So the work Earl does with investigative solutions is definitely very helpful in every Absolutely. aspect, not just workers' compensation, but insurance litigation as well. So I, I think we want to th- take the time to thank Earl for sitting on this podcast with us today. And just ask Earl, is there anything else you feel like you wanted to add about investigative solutions today? No, no. And in, in my 10 years, I think I've only seen or have worked one case that ended up going criminal in New Jersey. Um, the one I discussed earlier in New York, they pushed criminally. And I had one years ago in New Jersey go criminal. And the guy ended up doing, I think, 15 years. Um, he, he faked an injury at a car dealership. Um, but he also stole a car from the car dealership and then committed wire fraud <laughs> in getting a loan to buy the car from the dealership. He kept the money. He kept the car. Um, but he was claiming to be disabled and he would, he owned his own security business. He was a security guard and he would go out at night and work security at bars and stuff like that. Um, and the only reason I think that one went criminal is because the the dealership had some clout and kept pushing politically. Um, and when they finally started looking into it, they found the, the, the theft of the car, the wire fraud, and he and his girlfriend both got arrested and, and served time. So wow. um, it happens. It's very, very rare, um, but it does happen. Now, now Earl, if uh, an adjuster wanted to get in touch with you, if they wanted to use you for an investigation, how can they go about uh, reaching out to you? Sure. So our, our website is uh, njprivateinvestigator.com. And my email is earl, E-A-R-L, at njprivateinvestigator.com. And our office number is 973-857-4545. We have have people here answering the phones 24-7. So if you need us, uh, give us a call. Thanks so much for joining us, Earl. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Earl. 
it was a lot of fun. Well, I want to thank everyone who listened to the podcast. I hope this was helpful. Um, if anyone would like to reach out to either myself or Vanessa, I can be reached at swilson at wglaw.com. Be happy to ask, uh, answer any questions you might have regarding investigation and surveillance. And uh, Vanessa, if you could just uh, let them know how to reach you. Sure. I can be reached at V Mendeleski. That's M-E-N-D-E-L-E-W-S-K-I at wglaw.com. Our numbers are also on the website, wglaw.com. And you can also find our other podcasts and webinars in the series. Great. Thanks very much. I hope everyone enjoyed the podcast. Thank you for listening to Workers' Compensation Academy, presented by Weber Gallagher. We hope you join us next time to learn more about managing risk to improve your bottom line. Until then, please visit us at wglaw.com.